In this episode, Ronald Hohauser, CFO at Legendary Entertainment, talks about his experience of building a new movie studio from scratch, navigating the financial turbulence of Hollywood, and why the greatest career challenges can lead to the most profound lessons. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Ron, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure, Ross. I'd love to start by exploring some of your experience because you've had an incredible career, almost entirely focused on on the film and entertainment industry, well, certainly over the last couple of decades, and then prior to that in investment banking. Could you speak a little bit about how you navigated this journey, first of all, starting in finance and then moving into to film and entertainment and, and along the way, going through starting a studio, transforming a studio, and now in your current place, helping to run one of the most Im- impressive uh, studios that there are globally. How has that journey emerged for you? I guess I should start after completing my university undergraduate. I was in a very different career. I, I worked as a computer programmer and I developed large-scale financial systems as, as part of big companies. And I thought that's what I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a programmer and a, and a developer. And about five years in, I decided that I wanted to go back to school, get some additional education and explore what else might be out there. I went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And, you know, of course, Wharton is well known for finance. So having had a technical background, somebody who spent a lot of time on computers and and programming, it was natural for me to gravitate toward finance and and to to study that as a a discipline. So I graduated with a degree in finance uh, in 1997, and I was wanted to figure out what I wanted to do. And I figured that the the world was my oyster. I probably did not want to go back into the same industry I, I had been working in. I ended up working in commercial theater on Broadway. And I interned for a producer, and then I went to work for a couple of other companies, and I really learned that business very in-depth. I had a, an opportunity to join an investment bank that, that focused on entertainment transactions that entailed a move to Los Angeles. So my wife and I moved to Los Angeles in 2001. I joined that investment bank. I worked on a number of M&A transactions, capital market transactions or entertainment companies for three or four years. And then I guess in everybody's career, there's a little bit of serendipity or good luck or bad luck, however you want to look at it. My investment bank was acquired and uh, they shut down our LA office. So I found myself at a crossroads. I did join briefly another investment bank for a few months, but I had already started looking into other opportunities for me to, for me to join the industry in a more operational role. And I was very fortunate to discover that Marvel Entertainment, at the time, primarily a comic book company and a licensor of its intellectual property to the studios. So there were some movies that were being made out of Marvel Comics, but Marvel itself was not a film producer. Marvel had hired in its nascent Marvel Studios division a new president. And that was a guy that I had worked for previously. So I reached out to him and he told me that he was developing a plan to, that he was going to pitch to the, to the Marvel leadership about transforming that company from licensing its intellectual property 
to the major studios to instead being a producer and an owner of the films that would be made. That sounded really, really exciting to me. And so I joined him and I joined that group as a, a senior finance professional. So I was, a, I think, a vice president of finance and strategy at Marvel Studios. Marvel did very well on that first Spider-Man. They made maybe $50 million on license fees and royalties. And of course, they ended up selling a lot of beach towels and lunch boxes. But when we looked at the at the financial results for Sony, which was the studio behind Spider-Man, they made something like a billion dollars of worldwide profit on that movie. So we're looking at it and we're saying, boy, the studios are having a lot of success off our titles. And by the way, similarly, Marvel had licensed X-Men to Fox. And Fox had tremendous success on both the first X-Men movie and then the second one, X2. And we were saying, well, you know, we are the experts. We understand our characters, but we're letting the movie studios make the bulk of the money. So let's see if there's another way. And we engage in a process that took a good year and a half to figure out, well, how are we going to finance this? Uh, Marvel was not a particularly big company at the time and, and did not have the appetite for taking enormous financial risks. So we had to raise financing and we had to figure out what the right operational strategy was to be able to develop the expertise on how to, how to put movies together and produce them and make them I guess it was September of 2005, we closed our financing, we hired a bunch of people and, and we said, we're gonna, make, we're gonna make the first true Marvel movie. I mean, I was very fortunate to be part of navigating that, that strategy and, and of putting all that together. I had nothing to do with making the movies, I can't take any credit for it. But you know, certainly it was fun for me to watch as the creative team uh, decided to cast Robert Downey Jr. As Iron Man developed the, the screenplay for, for that first movie, Iron Man at the time was not a well-known comic character. The X-Men, Spider-Man, these were beloved, very well-known, broadly known characters. Iron Man was basically the true comic book nerds loved Iron Man, but people didn't really know him, you know, sort of outside in the general population. One of the outside advisors that we had used at, at Marvel to put the, the whole structure together was a lawyer. I work for him today. He is my CEO today, as it happens. But we met during the Marvel transaction. He called me up in 2006 and said, I've got an idea. We put this Marvel deal together. I've worked on some other deals to finance the production of movies. There is an opportunity in the marketplace for a new studio, a new distributor of movies. We hooked up with a former executive from Paramount, he had been the, the chief operating officer at Paramount Pictures. He was a great executive named Rob Friedman. We determined that Rob would love to, to help start this venture with us and in fact, be its CEO. And over the course of about a year, we put a deal together. We raised half a billion dollars in total financing, about 150 million of equity and the rest of it in, in debt financing. We acquired a company that became the kernel of the new company. It was a small company in the film business that produced a couple of movies and, and was very good in international distribution and in, in the foreign sales aspect of the business. And we closed the, the new company, which we called Summit Entertainment, taking on the name of the foreign sales company. Summit had been around for a long time, but now the new studio was going to be called Summit. I was sad to leave Marvel. There was great things happening at Marvel. As we know, you know, a couple of years later, they were acquired by Disney for $4 billion and the rest is history. 
but I had to leave that behind, but for a new opportunity. And I was lucky to come in as the CFO of this, it wasn't a brand new company because we had 50 people that we had brought on board from this company that we acquired, but it was a brand new strategy and we had to, to figure it out. And so for me, it was both a finance challenge and an operating challenge. The company we had acquired had had a CFO and she was very good. She was gracious enough to agree to continue to work for me as my, really my right hand, as my, as my deputy. So I learned a lot from her and, and, you know, she and I partnered through the, through the five years that, that we were at the company together. And we had a fantastic run. You know, the business was very different than what we had modeled it to be, which is not unusual. You know, we, when we created the company, we said, we're not going to bank on hits. You know, you, you can never predict when, when you're going to have a hit in the movie business. What we're going to bank on is that we're going to have a lot of discipline. We're going to hit doubles and singles. We're going to not take too much risk and, you know, we'll make money on average, but, you know, we won't have one or two big movies that end up driving the entire business. What ended up happening was we had a really big hit and that ended up driving the success of the entire business. And that hit was Twilight. Twilight was a movie that surprised us with how well it did surprise the entire industry. You know, Twilight launched a billion dollar business for us. Uh, so it was very exciting. It changed the trajectory of the company. But I'll tell you from the standpoint of, you know, kind of lessons learned and, and you know, the kind of career you can have as a CFO, that first year and a half at Summit, it was really challenging because we hired a lot of people that ha had Hollywood experience, but, you know, they hadn't worked together before. It was a new company. We had to figure out how to make sure that everything worked correctly and we had to kind of get our groove. And the first four or five movies that we released, they all lost money and some of them lost a lot of money. Uh, you know, they would lose almost their, their entire investment. And we had we were a well-capitalized company, but as I just told you, we raised about a hundred million of equity. That doesn't go far if you're going to lose 15 or 20 million at, at a shot. I ran all the cash projections and, you know, if we kept going and losing money at, at this rate, we were going to be out of business. And I had such enormous stress. You know, I had been the guy to create the models and to, and to make the presentations and to help, you know, convince investors to back our venture. So it was a, it was a good hundred million dollars that we had, that we had at risk. And I felt responsible for my investors' capital. We had acquired a company. We had 50 people that, that we had working for us, but then we staffed up pretty significantly. So by this point in time, probably had 150 people at the company. And I was very well aware, or I believed that if the company went under, then that would be a, a black mark on my record that I would carry with me throughout my whole career. I was having difficulty sleeping. You were saying there that that, that period just prior to Twilight being launched and then turning into this incredible hit, there was an extremely stressful, difficult period, perhaps the most difficult of your of your career. And that in that, there was a lesson through that stress and through that difficulty. What was that lesson? There's a lot of responsibility to being a CFO. It's a hard job and, you know, there's a lot of different moving parts and it's a lot of fun and, you know, every day is different. But ultimately, you own it. If you're working with a company that is publicly traded and, and that has investors that you're, you're answerable to or that you've raised private capital, if you have employees, if you have vendors or people in the community, all of the stakeholders that rely on the success of your firm as a CFO, you're one of the leaders of the company. You're responsible. I was young in my career and, uh, you know, I hadn't gone through 
as many of ups and downs as that as now I've gone through. And so that one that one particular period where you know I felt that stress, I felt that responsibility, I was scared and nervous that maybe the company was going to you know could possibly fail. It, it was hard to get through that. I did get through it ultimately. In my particular case, I was lucky. We, you know, we had a we had a fantastic result from a movie, and and it changed the company pretty immediately. And so it relieved that stress. But there were later times in my career that I faced similar circumstances. In fact, just as a as a little sidebar, there was a, a small company five or six years later that I was the CFO of, and it got itself into trouble, and it eventually went out of business. It wasn't the same scale as Summit would have been. And I worked really, really hard to do the best that I could for the stakeholders that were involved. We had to let a lot of employees go. Uh, we had to default on a loan that we had. And, you know, I tried to navigate that with as much grace and, and honor as I could. But ultimately, it wasn't within my control. And interestingly, while that one was the, the less successful outcome, I had far less stress. I'd already been through it. And it sounds as if the, the pressure is immense. And so you went through this extremely high stress situation and you're going to set the watermark for stress in your body. And then even in the in the future one, there was stress there, but it didn't quite reach that same watermark. Do you think it's inevitable to almost have to go through that first close to burnout to be able to deal with it better later on? Or looking back, is there a more enlightened way to approach those high pressure, high stress situations that CFOs find themselves in? One of the reasons that we were ultimately successful at Summit was because those first few movies that we released did not work. And we understood that, well, this is the nature of the movie business. And it, you sort of, you have your ups and downs and you have to, you have to be able to navigate both types of situations. I've seen many companies that had, you know, maybe their first movie was a success or they had, you know, a great first few years, and then they think, oh, well, this business is easy. And then they might end up taking too much risk and they get themselves in trouble down the line. You really do have to have some adversity. And that adversity is, it, it builds character, it builds experience, it builds confidence. And there's really nothing like that to, to give you the tools and the resilience that you need to make it through both the good times and the bad. Part of the lesson is, don't get too high at the good times. Don't get too low at the bad times. There are a lot of things that are in your control and you can work hard and you can use your talents and the relationships that you have. There are a lot of things that are not within your control. And all you can do is bring your best and try to act as, as honorably and as sensitively as you can. But you have to, to learn to be able to turn it off at the end of the day. So it sounds as if now, and you use that word control, that you are really much more mindful about spheres of influence and focusing on what you can control regardless of how challenging the situation is. Well, that's exactly right. And the movie business is a, is a great teacher of lessons for that. We do a lot of analysis for every movie that we, that we want to greenlight. And you know, there's a lot of science and, that we can put in place. But ultimately, we're putting a product into the market and it will be accepted by the audiences or it won't. And, you know, there's only you only have limited control over that. So there is a certain art to it. Uh, there is a certain amount of luck involved with it. And, you know, if you're going to be in my industry or many industries that have that inherent uncertainty, you have to have the stomach for it, or you have to you have to develop the the patience and resilience to ride the wave and to 
to control and influence what you can and to understand that there's, you know, there are a lot of things that, that you're not going to be able to. I'm wondering in those situations, are there other techniques that you use to almost like to develop a stronger, more, you know, resilient stomach for when you've got those choppier times? As an example for me, like if I'm going through periods where you're feeling immense levels of stress or pressure or and, and it's getting through into other aspects of life, I always find either exercise or meditation, uh, they're like both incredibly powerful for me because they, they're cleansing. It doesn't solve the problem, but it means I'm in a better place to find solutions. Do you have any techniques that you have developed and now use in those scenarios? Exercise, nutrition, getting enough sleep. In a lot of ways, it's like an endurance athlete. You know, it's a, it's a hard job. There are, there are times of, of enormous stress. You need to take care of yourself, you know, and I, and I think that you also need to know when to lift to fight another day. There's never enough time to do all the work that needs to be done. Uh, you know, there's always something that'll have to be done tomorrow. And there was a point earlier in my career that I would try to work as many hours as I could and get as much done as I could today so that I wouldn't have to do it tomorrow. But then what I learned is that well, there's just going to be new stuff coming in tomorrow. So, you know, at some point you have to be able to strike a balance and say, I'm going to turn this off for the day. The other thing is in those early years, when I was still learning how to become a CFO, I really relied on my deputy. As I indicated, uh, there were other people that worked at the company that, that worked for me that were, you know, really did a fantastic job. But I really felt like I had to do a lot of the work myself. I wasn't confident in it. I didn't know how to do a lot of it. So I, I had to I had to learn some of the accounting. I had to learn a lot of the, the financial modeling. I wanted to touch everything. And I thought that that was how I was going to be most successful, was to work harder and smarter and longer. When I came to Legendary, which was, you know, I started at Legendary 10 years after I started at Summit. So what I learned very quickly was my highest value that I could provide was to manage and support and enable the team of people that work with me. And it's incredible the amount of leverage that you get, you know, versus 10 years before when I was trying to do so much of it myself and there was all that enormous stress versus today where the job feels easier. I probably have the same quality of people working for me, but I trust them more today. And it's fun for me too, to give them opportunity and to let them you know, grow in their careers. I've become much more of somebody who manages people rather than managing tasks. And that has gone a long way to ease that stress and to, and to allow me to do my job better. What this reminds me of like when you, I listened to you describe that, that analogy is an orchestra and you've learned to conduct. And, and it also reminds me of the line from the Steve Jobs film where, he, where he's been, Wozniak asks him like, what do you actually do? And he said, I play the orchestra. And it feels as if from a certain perspective is that you have developed your and honed your skills at playing the orchestra as a CFO. You sent me some prep questions and, and uh, one of them was, you know, what does your typical day look like? And, you know, I started thinking about well, what does my typical day look like? And well, I've got a lot of calls and meetings and I approve a lot of things, but I don't do, I don't really do that much. You know, I'm not an accountant. And thank goodness I've got a fantastic chief accounting officer and a great accounting team. And I mean, I know enough to be dangerous and I'll get involved with, you know, I'll, I'll review financial statements and the like, but, but I couldn't do the accounting. I came up as a financial modeler and I've got a great financial modeling team, but it's been a long time since I've created a large complex model. I don't think that I could do that 
today. A lot of times uh, those models are fueled by late nights and caffeine and <laughs> I don't have the endurance for that anymore. And it sounds that as you described that as if as your confidence as a CFO grew, your skill and you've not you've not said but i'm inferring this that your skill in delegating and perhaps setting expectations and creating the culture around accountability of you know achieving those objectives it sounds as if that's the piece that's really elevated to a new level over those 10 years say between summit and starting with legendary one of the things that i enjoy about my job is giving younger people opportunity and empowering them and to a lesser extent teaching them and, and mentoring them, you build so much, you learn so much from just having the experience, you learn by doing. And that's really what I want to give uh, the people that, that work with me and for me. One of the differences between 10 years ago and today is that I've never done that stuff myself. And so I felt like I needed to prove it to myself and to my CEO and to everybody else that I dealt with that, that, I, that I could do it, that I was capable. And that's actually where I was going to go with it because you now have nothing to prove because you've done it, because you've tested yourself and now you can, you're can you comfortable stepping away from it. So again, if someone was approaching that maybe in their first CFO role or, or early in that, and because I'd imagine very few CFOs really know what it's like until they become a CFO and they hadn't experienced all of the, the huge broad remit that a CFO has, would you recommend them to follow the path that you went down where you should take all these different opportunities so they can almost complete their skill set? Or would you encourage earlier delegation in their position? I think it depends on where you are in your career. It's really fun to be part of a startup, to be a person junior in your career and to, and to take on a senior responsibility. You know, in that particular case, you know, maybe you don't have the, the long experience. And in that case, you know, you just got to throw yourself into the fire. You got to, and I, I do think that it's really good to get the hands-on experience of, of having, of having done those things. One of the things you could do is you could hire senior people or you could hire consultants and you could outsource to them, but then you may never actually develop the confidence on, of what does it take? When is it being done right? On the other hand, if you're somebody who's been fortunate to to have had a mentor, for example, you know, to have worked side by side with a CFO, to have worked your way up through the organization and to have gathered various skills over the years. And so let's say you've had a 10, 15, 20 year career, and now you're stepping into the CFO role. It's probably going to be easier. You've, you've seen it done. You've seen it modeled before. You've probably done some of those things in, in various roles. And in that case, I would expect that you would come in with some more confidence and in order to be effective, you're going to want to delegate. You're going to have to delegate. You've spoken a lot about your team and empowering your team and delegating opportunities to them in those moments of crisis. And the one thing you didn't mention as well with Summit as well is in those 18 months, it was in the 18 months leading up to an impending financial crisis. So that and I'm sure that must have been as a financier compounding that. Oh, I forgot to mention that. You know, <laughs> one of our banks ended up in a bankruptcy and they, they froze our credit for it wasn't our fault. It was their fault for about a month period of time. And we were trying to use that money to, I think it was to complete Twilight, if I'm not mistaken. So yes, it was a very, very challenging time. And we were specifically <laughs> impacted by that. So that didn't help. But I can imagine because <laughs> you told the story and I was thinking, hold on, it's like early 2007, all the way through to late 2008, 
Uh, I'm pretty sure Lehman was crashing round about that period. So I'm sure that didn't help. You're exactly right. Absolutely. So in that context, you're you're trying to lead your team. In that situation, you're a new CFO. But more recently with Legendary, of course, going through a pandemic, you're you know much more experienced. You've developed a lot. But both of those are crises. How do you lead your team and help lead the company as a CFO in those moments of intense crises? The crises were similar in the broader economy, but where I was as a CFO and as a leader were very, very different. And so when I came into Legendary, I made an intentional effort to open up a little bit more and to get better at the softer skills, the management type skills. I was not a good manager when I was the CFO at Summit. And you know, I would say that that was probably my weakest natural aptitude. I was a very private person. I didn't really talk about my personal life at work. I had, I had a very bright dividing line between my personal life and, and my professional life. And I decided when I came to Legendary that I wanted to do it differently. I wanted to connect with my staff. I wanted to get to know my staff as people. And I wanted to break away from my natural tendency to be maybe a little more introverted and to, to really to, to make connections with the people that I worked with. So the first thing that I did you know, I inherited this staff from my predecessor with a really high performing team. I set a lunch. It took me like a month to have lunch with every single person on my team and to really get to know them on a personal level. I wanted to know, understand what they did and I want to understand what their career goals were. But I also wanted to know about their families and about their, you know, their histories and their backgrounds. And it doesn't sound like a big deal, but for me, it was a big deal. It was, it was hard for me to do that because I can't just ask questions about somebody else's life. I need to share things about my life as well. So all of a sudden now I'm coming into a professional environment and I'm sharing more about myself and about my family and about, you know, maybe challenges. I showed some vulnerability as to maybe some things that, that I was going through. And I can tell you that establishing that base of relationships with my team, by the way, I still don't think I'm a great manager, that this is something I'm always going to be challenged with, but I'm a whole lot better than what I was. And this particular pandemic, you know, the challenge was how do you communicate? How do you maintain the relationships? How do you allow people to continue to feel connected to the company? How do you work and continue to help keep people motivated through this time? And it's all about communication. And the fact that I had made that effort and established those relationships and knew my team, that paid a lot of dividends. We set up a lot of formal meetings. I think it was really at the early days of the pandemic, uh, we did department meetings two or three times a week. It wasn't always very comfortable. You know, we had a team of 15, 20 people and, you know, I'm the leader of this meeting and I wanted to talk about personal things. That's a, that's a lot of what we did in those meetings was we said, you know, how are things going in your personal life? Anything you want to share? You know, how are you getting through the pandemic? You know, you talked about exercise and nutrition and, and sleep, and we talked about those things. And I, I think that that we stayed cohesive as a team. And it certainly wasn't all me. We have other managers and, and leaders at the company and within the team. But it was easier for me to be able to do that and to be able to continue to, to keep the team together and motivated because I had been focusing on those softer skills, if you will. I find that fascinating because 
several previous guests have mentioned, okay, there comes a point where your intelligence and your technical problem solving and so on can get you to a certain level. And then your leadership has to transcend that. And that's where it comes down to relationships and communication and building of culture, as well as building your team. And again, that sounds as if that was like a really critical step and and transition in your leadership style as you started with Legendary. It was. And again, it was it was intentional. The time that I had with Summit, a lot of it being good luck and having a big hit with the Twilight franchise, but it was very successful. I mean, it supercharged my career. I was the CFO for five years. And during that time, we had a tremendous amount of success. We made a lot of money. It felt really good to be at the company. There was a lot of uh, esprit de corps. Uh, and we sold the company to Lionsgate in 2012. And we made a five or six times return for our investors. And it was a signature transaction in our business. So now, of course, I had this resume where I've been at Marvel and everybody knows the success that Marvel has had. And then I was at Summit and that was a very, very successful studio. And so it was, you know, I was, I was on a high in my career. But when I came to Legendary, I wanted to do it better. And I was very intentional about shoring up maybe the, the weak parts and doing things, the things that I didn't do well at Summit maybe to try to do them a little better when I came to Legendary. And also not to have the level of stress that I had at Summit. I hoped that we wouldn't have the same kind of financial difficulties at Legendary, and we haven't. But if we did, it wouldn't be as hard for me today as it would have been 10 years ago. Once you start thinking of yourself as really being the member of a team, or as, as you indicated earlier, the conductor of an orchestra, you can expand your influence. Now, it's more fun to be to work collaboratively with people than, than to work on your own. And people together are able to do some surprising things. You know, my evolution as a CFO, as a leader in a company, you know, it's, it's probably matched by, by what other people have gone through uh, as we've gone through, through this particular crisis. So Ron, I would like to wrap up now with just one question that I, that I often ask towards the end. And you've given lots of tips and hints and advice uh, already. But for anyone who's listening who is not a CFO yet, but wants to develop and grow so that they can become one, what advice would you have to those people who are, are slightly early in their career, but have that, that aspiration? The first thing is you have to be really good at at least one thing. When a person comes out of college and joins a company, they're usually pretty raw and they, they bring energy and aptitude, but they don't really know how to do anything yet. And when you're at a company, the value that you offer if you're just somebody who kind of comes to work and you do your nine to five and you do the job that they teach you how to do, then you know you're you're one of a lot of one of a lot of people. And you know just by the nature of the the numbers game, not everybody that graduates from college can become a CFO. You need to be really good at one thing that is critical for the business. And what I was really good at was I was an Excel rocket scientist. I mean, I could create models. I spent a lot of time. So when I joined Marvel, I'd been at the investment bank. I knew how to, how to model M&A transaction. What I didn't know, you know, when we started building this, the financial model for what the, what the Marvel film producing business was going to look like, I didn't really know what a film model looked like. I didn't understand all of the ins and outs. And we had an outside consultant and they built a model for us. And I dug into the model. And I spent a lot of late nights trying to understand all the things that they've done. They were very smart. I learned a lot from them and I deconstructed it. And after a few weeks, after a couple of months, maybe, I began to understand how it worked. And I thought, you know, there's some mistakes in this model. 
and I fixed them. And then I began to think, you know, there's a, there's a better way to do this. And, and so then, you know, ultimately rebuilt it. And it was a, you know, very powerful and a very good model. And ultimately, that was the kernel of the model that I built the, the summit business plan off of. And then when I was a consultant for five years, it became a really, really great tool. But it was only because I put the time and the effort and the intellectual capital into really understanding something that not a lot of people understood. And that became really, really critical for the business of, in the first case, Marvel and, and later Summit and, and uh, other companies. The other thing is, is you, know, you want to be intentional about what your goals are. If you're ambitious, if you want more responsibility, if you have an ultimate goal within your career, you don't want to be impatient and, and you don't want to you know, ask for too much responsibility too soon. But I think it's important that the people that you work with know that this is the direction you want to go to. Ask for mentoring, ask for teaching, ask, keep your eyes open. If you want to be a CFO, watch the CFO, see how the CFO handles him or herself in a meeting or how they make decisions or, you know, how do they advise the CEO? Because whether good or bad, you're going to be able to take valuable lessons from that. Ron, great advice for anyone that's listening that wants to become a CFO. Thank you so much for joining us today. If any of our listeners want to connect with you or, or, or follow you online, where should they do that? Our website is legendary.com. Anybody can reach out to me at my email address, rhohauser at legendary.com. I love meeting new people. I'm always happy to, to mentor people or to, or to talk to people about, about their career aspirations or their goals. Just don't send me any movie scripts. I'm not involved <laughs> in that side of the business. Thank you, Rod. You're welcome. Thanks, Ross. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com. Thank you.